First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Hi, I'm Jason Wachab, founder and CEO of My Buddy Green, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the My Buddy Green podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at mybuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Today, I am delighted to welcome board-certified reproductive endocrinologist, marathon runner, and fertility guru, Dr. Shiva Talabian to the Mind Body Green podcast. Since finishing her residency at New York University, she's become more interested in blending teachings from Eastern and Western medicine, and we discuss her patient successes from a blend of traditional Chinese medicine, diet, acupuncture, and supplements for fertility. Shiva, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So you are a reproductive endocrinologist. Tell me what that means. Okay, so I went to medical school, and then I did a residency in obstetrics and gynecology, and then I took that kind of a step further, and I subspecialized and did a fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. And essentially, um, I'm a fertility specialist. So did you always know you wanted to be a fertility doctor or specialist? <laughs> um, I did not. Um, I always say the apple didn't fall very far from the tree. My father was an OBGYN, um, kind of practiced more general OBGYN. And then during my residency training, when I kind of got to sort of experience the different subspecialties, this was really the one I felt most drawn to. So fertility and the wellness world, Eastern and Western, used to be two really separate worlds. And now I'm seeing, which is awesome, in both of these worlds, a blending. What are some of the Eastern or wellness practices that you guys advocate or use in your practice? Right, absolutely. So, you know, I kind of make the joke that as I've... um, you know, progressed in the years as being a physician and the more I'm getting away from medical school and residency and fellowship, um, even me personally, I say I'm becoming more Eastern in my older (laughs) age. And, um, you know, Western medicine is very compartmentalized. You look at each sort of organ system and study that one individually. Um, and um, this concept of the whole kind of a little bit is is more Eastern than Western. And so, um, you know, as I've practiced over the years, um, the fertility world is amazing and there's amazing technology and there's amazing medications that are available. But you do sometimes come to um, kind of more challenging cases where, you feel like you're falling short. And this is a little bit where um, when I finished my fellowship training, I actually worked out in Seattle for a year. And I met a wonderful TCM specialist out there who kind of turned me on to the Eastern world. And, um, you know, she had a very strong understanding of the Western aspect. 
And so I learned quite a bit from her and um, really was able to sort of see some of the benefits of incorporating Eastern medicine into what we do in our Western practices. So um, I'm a big, big advocate of, of seeing a TCM specialist, doing the acupuncture treatment, herbal treatment, supplements, um, dietary kind of changes per their protocol. Um, and we definitely work hand in hand and it's um, no longer simply do I refer with like really challenging cases. I actually kind of off the bat talk about it with almost all my patients. So I love acupuncture. I've been doing it every week for like five years. Um, And the principles of TCM eating from a nutrition standpoint really resonate with me. Is the science there to show its impact on fertility? Or is it just something you believe in and have seen firsthand the results? So, um, you know, what I always say is, you know, over the years, there have been multiple um, different, you know, studies that have been published. And the data can vary. There's definitely some good studies out there showing, you know, a direct correlation of potentially improved implantation rates with acupuncture treatment right before an embryo implant and right after. So -hmm. there is some data to show this. Then on the flip side, over the years, there's been studies that have come out that haven't shown a difference in the benefit. But what I always say is, A, I think it's very difficult to study, and B, we're, the literature that we're talking about and that we're looking at is really, it's Western literature. It's right. studies that are performed in a Western manner, evaluating an Eastern practice. So I think it could be you know a little challenging to really show that data. I think it's also really hard to do like a randomized prospective study, which is the gold standard, to right. show there's a benefit. I can definitely say, Anecdotally, um, since I've been practicing, or you know, I was a fellow from 2005 to 2008. I've been practicing on, my, you know, a, as an attending since then. I can I can definitely say that I have seen for many of my patients a benefit. So stress is something that comes up so often in the fertility and infertility conversation, um, which I'm sure every woman who's trying to conceive loves to hear. Don't stress; it's all going to work out. What role does fertility play and how can people help manage the stress during one of the most stressful times of their lives? Yeah, so this is a very, very common question. I think one of the top like five questions I get is what impact is the stress of my life having on my fertility? In New York City. Yeah, particularly in New York City. Um, you know, getting from point A to point B in New York City is extremely <laughs> challenging, especially during the holiday season. Yes, but, I agree. Um, But, you know, I always say that stress in general, right, it's not good for any organ system. It's not good for our heart. It's not good for our vascular system. It's it's not good for our reproductive system either. But I also caution um, couples and women and individuals and say it's also very rarely is stress the primary cause of why you may be having, you know, not getting pregnant. Right. So can it be compounding other factors? Yes. But it very rarely is it the sole cause. I mean, I hate to make the analogy, but there have been people in extreme situations with very bad situations who get pregnant. But certainly it's something we have to address as fertility doctors and offer solutions to because, you know, another common question I get from people is when does your, you know, when does it ever not work? You know, and I always say the only time it doesn't not work is when people give up. And so if you give up entirely on your endeavor to be a parent, then yes, it it has 
not worked in that case. And so what can we do to keep people, as I like to say, in the game? Like, yep. you know, keep at it, keep at it. When when one thing isn't successful, keep at it. Keep putting one foot in front of the other. Right. And minimizing stress will help you um, persevere. And what do we know about environmental factors and their effect on em- Fertility. Yeah, I think this is again another area that's really hard to study. Something that we're there's only recently been more of a focus on, and you know, I, I think similar questions with respect to fertility, similar questions with respect to cancer. Yeah, um, I think it's kind of a similar concept, and um, you know. <sighs> I was born in the 70s. I grew up in the 80s. Like everything was aerosol and (laughs) everything was processed. And who knows what hormones were fed to the meat that I ate. Um, And I think that definitely like it's not good for you. It's not good for your health. It's not good for, you know, with respect to, does that up your cancer risk? Potentially. Does it up your infertility risk? Potentially. But I do think that there's a combination of environment in addition to genetics. I think genetics are huge when it comes to fertility as well as, you know, cancer. So I think kind of the combination of definitely toxins in our environment in addition to potentially genetic predisposition to some of these, you know, issues like infertility. I think the two can kind of collide and make it like the perfect storm. Right. Unfortunately, as women, we're born with our eggs. We're sort of, our eggs are exposed to everything they've been exposed to our entire lives. So I'm, I am a big advocate of trying, knowing now what we know in 2019 versus when I grew up, you know, I think I'm a big advocate of, of people trying to clean up things in their home for their children's sake like for us I don't know like it's you know for me I'm like in well into my 40s like I don't know you know how it can you know yes it's still good to do but I do think just for like as a parent having a daughter like you know no aerosol deodorant like I'm really you know trying to sort of change things no soda no diet soda trying to eliminate some of these things that were so commonplace for me growing up Um, I think for those kind of currently dealing with fertility, um, I think certainly cannot hurt to clean up your environment, you know, to kind of try to switch over. Never a bad thing. Never a bad thing. And when it comes to genetics, if someone wants to know, okay, am I inclined to be more fertile or to have fertility issues? Like, are there tests? Everyone likes answers, black and white. (laughs) Yeah. So so first off, know your family history. Talk to your mother. Talk to your grandmother. Talk to your aunts. um, And, you know, you want to kind of ask questions about, like, you know, sometimes a lot of my patients are like, I don't feel comfortable talking about my mom and I would never talk about this. But if you do, if you are, if you do have that relationship with anyone in your family, you want to kind of get a sense of did your mother, you know, aunts, whomever have any issues conceiving? At what age did they go through menopause? You know, which is essentially when was her last period? Um, so getting the family history, I think, is just step one, and that's very important. Um, you know, we're not quite there yet in, in terms of specific genetic markers. There's a couple genetic tests that may um, predispose to early menopause. There's something called the fragile X syndrome, which if a woman carries like a, what we call the premutations 
state um, predisposes to early menopause and decreased fertility. Um, but we're still working on that. And there are definitely, you know, it, it's an area I think that in the next few years, there'll be more information, more targeted genetic testing. Um, but currently, we're not very good at that in terms of like taking blood from a female and saying, okay, these are definitely the genes involved in your fertility. And you, you know, have maybe potentially this issue or that issue. We're right. not quite there. They're definitely, we're getting there. Um, so in terms of genetics, it's, it's, you know, we just don't have a lot of data yet. And what does just looking at a woman's ovarian reserve on an ultrasound tell you? Right. So, um, you know, I have, so what can we get us, you know, backtrack, we're born with our ovaries, we're born with our eggs and egg is one cell. Unfortunately, we're naturally, those, they're sort of dying off on any given day. Um, and I always say when we were in utero, we had the most eggs. They estimate 20 million eggs. By the time we're born, we have a million. And at puberty, we have approximately half a million. That's like the average woman. Um, but we don't ovulate half a million times in our life. So an egg is a cell and it's just sort of naturally fizzling away. So, um, there's this concept of, you know, ovarian reserve, which is getting a sense of, you know, what's your egg quality and what's your egg quantity. Yeah. And um, you can do an ultrasound and we can look at the ovaries and we kind of get a sense of the size of the ovaries. We look at what are called follicles, which are these little fluid-filled sacs where the eggs live. The more follicles you have in your ovaries is reflective of overall egg number underneath. There is a blood test called the AMH or the anti-malarian hormone. It is made by all the little follicles and eggs. And so the higher it is, the more eggs in theory you have. But it's not specific enough to say you have 100,000 or 50,000. It's just on a scale. And it's so again, it's a very loose indirect marker of your egg number. Yeah, there are some factors actually, you know, when the blood test actually initially came out, Mm. we thought didn't matter if you were on hormonal contraception or not, it was an accurate Mm. reading. That's actually not the case. Um, We do see that women who have been on long-term hormonal contraception may have an artificially lowered AMH. So that's just something you have to be wary of if you're going and having your AMH checked. Interesting. Um, So ideally, if you're not on any hormonal contraception and haven't been for a few months, it tends to be a more accurate marker. So that is just, again, though, purely egg number. It doesn't say, yes, those eggs are good. No, they're not. Yes, you're fertile. No, you're not. No proxy for quality, just quantity. Exactly. Um, And then really, really the most more difficult, challenging aspect, you know, factor to assess is the quality of the egg. Historically, we have always checked an estrogen level in conjunction with a hormone called FSH on the second or third day of a woman's menstrual cycle. And again, you can't, you know, not on hormonal contraception. Right. And FSH is a signaling hormone made in your pituitary gland mm-hmm. that tells your ovary to start the ovulation process at the beginning of each menstrual cycle. And historically, as our ovaries kind of slow down and we lose our egg number, the FSH just goes up and up. So historically, a high FSH may be a red flag, red flag for a low, lower or diminished egg quality. Got it. However, I, I always caution women. It, it's that correlation of a high FSH being a marker for poor egg quality is is tighter the older you are. So it's not uncommon for a woman in her early 30s to maybe have a slightly elevated FSH. That doesn't mean her egg quality is 
in the garbage or they're just not going to get <laughs> pregnant. So um, I, I think over time, over the past few years, we've probably, I personally have been p- placing less em- emphasis on the FSH. I, I just don't find it as helpful as as we, you know, maybe once thought it was. Interesting. There's such an exciting conversation around hormones that's happening now where it's been modernized and, you know, part of everyday conversation in a way that it it doesn't seem like it was five or even 10 years ago. So if someone's in their 20s and is, hey, I think I just want to make sure that someday there's an option for me, what are the types of conversations she should be having with her OBGYN? Right. So, you know, again, understanding your family history, um, are there any red flags for diminished fertility, earlier menopause, lower egg counts? And does the start of your period have any effect? Nope. Like what age? Okay. Nope. No, no Earlier or later, no. No okay. effect. It's more, um, again, like you want to just make sure there's no early menopause in the family, um, you know, certain medical conditions, if you as an adolescent were maybe had to take certain medications or God forbid had cancer and needed chemo radiation, like there are certain factors that we know can absolutely impact your fertility and those women should definitely seek, you know, kind of have the conversation at an earlier age. But, um, you know, I would, this whole, you know, this kind of brings us into the whole discussion of egg freezing, really. Yes. Um, which um, is, you know, IVF or in vitro fertilization, which is extracting an egg and immediately fertilizing it and making an embryo has been around for over 40 years. Um, we've been able to freeze embryos for almost as long. We've also been able to freeze sperm for decades, right? Mm -hmm. We've all heard of sperm banks being around for a long time. The egg alone, um, because it has a much higher water content to it, just took a lot longer to develop good technology to freeze it, right? Interesting. So because if you freeze water, it crystallizes. So this was a big problem. So really, you know, people have been trying to do it from the start of IVF, 40 years ago, but I would say really from 2000 on is when the research really kind of ramped up and um, places started offering elective egg freezing um, or egg freezing to women with cancer pre-chemo, I would say as early as like 2002, 2003 in the U.S., but it was still highly experimental, still trying to perfect the technique. There were two different technologies that, that we were sort of testing out at the time, and I would say fast forward, finally, in 2012, um, one of the techniques called vitrification, which is a fast flash freeze, sort of panned out as the better technology. There were babies that were born that were once vitrified eggs, and the American Society of Reproductive Medicine kind of took off the experimental label, finally, in 2012. Wow, um, I didn't realize it was that recent. Yeah, and so um, really from 2012 on is when I would say, you know, it's gotten more attention and, you know, women are educated and learning about it and, and more women are coming in to freeze their eggs. But, you know, at the same time, we do have this technology. We also don't want to sort of, you know, it, it requires taking hormone shots for two weeks um, you know, which has some side effects, which t- potentially has some risk- risks to it. It's a minor surgical extraction, but again, you have to have, you know, usually have some anesthesia and have a procedure done, um, and it costs money. Yes. So, um, so we kind of, you know, have to be really kind of cautious as to like, okay, you know, we don't want to just inflict fear and tell like every 21 year old that she needs to go and freeze her eggs or every 25 year old. So, right. you know, a kind of like at what point do you start having this conversation? And I, I generally say, 
for women, you know, 20 to 30, really, you know, kind of only pursue it, I would say, if there is some sort of family history or medical history that puts you at risk for yeah. having an early menopause. Um, or and what de- is an early menopause? How, how early? So by definition, um, premature menopause is any, you know, complete lack of ovulation in women 40 and under. Okay. But I would say with respect to your fertility, so the average age of menopause is around 51. Okay. And the studies show that getting pregnant with your own eggs becomes very challenging about 10 years before that. Okay. So kind of 41 on. So that's kind of the average. So I would sort of, okay, if my mom actually fully went through menopause at 45, which is a few years earlier yep. than average, that might mean that my, for, if I follow suit, that means my mom's eggs probably started to shift dramatically at 35. So maybe I want to do something, right? right? So I would say, you know, in terms of family history, if sibling, you know, a sister, mother of anyone, I would say fully really stopped getting their period at like kind of 45, that would be a little earlier than average. But but I also caution women, I'm like, the hot flushes, that, that's not menopause. Like, that can go on for years, you know? And so <laughs> That's just need, life? That's just life. But you need to ask your mom, like, when was your last period? Right. And that's kind of, okay. you know, like... <laughs> the better marker. The better marker, yeah. Um, so, so, you know, again, so I would say sort of for the average woman who doesn't have any red flags in her history... Um, a good time to really kind of start to think about maybe testing and doing something is somewhere in the range of 30 to 35. Got it. Um, you know, that's kind of like more the age that I sort of advocate or encourage it. Cool. And then as it relates to glands and women's health, um, we hear a lot about adrenals and are our adrenals getting overtaxed. Um, I don't think I had thought about my thyroid until I started trying to get pregnant, what can we do to help support those functioning well? Right. So I think, again, this is where, um, you know, the, the thyroid has gotten, like you said, a lot of attention. And I just think in general... 30% of women eventually develop a sluggish thyroid, huh. and most of that tends to be autoimmune. Um, I'm not so sure yet that we figure out how to stop that, um, but I think in general, with respect to thyroid and adrenals, I mean, you want to just have a healthy diet mm-hmm. um, and a healthy lifestyle. And, and do you typically recommend TCM-inspired diets or or I do. Range? Okay. I do, actually. So the okay. TCM diets tend to be anti-inflammatory, which is great for the reproductive system. Um, and also, if there is this concept of autoimmune issues going on, burning out your thyroid, I do think sort of this anti-inflammatory diet can potentially be helpful for that as well. You know, so I think those are the, those are great options to kind of go that route. Um, yep. And just, you know, just altering your diet and your lifestyle, potentially some of the symptoms like from like the adrenal fatigue can be can be combated just with that. And so is this rise of autoimmune disease having a large impact on on women's fertility? There's definitely um, a link between autoimmune diseases and and fertility. Um, And I I think we're learning a lot more about it. And it does seem to be heavily weighted upon the implant phase. So if your immune system is overactive, that can definitely lower the odds of an embryo trying to implant. 
And so, um, you know, there are various immune modulators and, and, you know, there's Western medicine. It's a lot of steroids to blunt the immune response. But um, definitely, I think this is an area where TCM, um, be it herbs, be it supplements, be it acupuncture treatment, can also help kind of blunt that immune response, lower the inflammation associated with a lot of autoimmune um, diseases, and promote the chances of an implantation. And are there any specific herbs you find yourself recommending to your patients or doctors recommending time and time again? So I'll tell you, I it is... It, it's that area is not what I study, right? Yeah. And I so what I do is I have you know TCM specialists who I know, who I trust, who understand what we do, and I basically say take care of it. Take care of it. Yeah. <laughs> and do you recommend patients heal or try to heal themselves from their autoimmune disease before they start IVF, or can you work on the two simultaneously? Definitely, you can work on the two simultaneously. Um, I think some of it depends on also the age of the female, right? The younger you are, kind of the more time you have to maybe try to um, not go the Western route um, and see if you can address some of these underlying autoimmune issues or inflammation that may be happening, you know, versus going straight kind of to Western medicine. But again, it really, I think, depends on the age of the female. For sure, the younger patient, patients, there's not so much of an urgency or a rush to progress to things like IVF. Right. But, you know, unfortunately, kind of in women, I would say kind of over 38, especially over 40, um, you know, it's hard to kind of hit the pause button and say, try sort of Eastern medicine for six or seven or nine months even, right. and then come back, you know, which is purely from a statistic standpoint, IVF stats do start to shift dramatically from 38 and then again beyond 41. And so time is a little bit more of the essence in those cases, but most certainly like we can work hand in hand. Sure. Um, So if someone is experiencing PCOS um, and looking to get pregnant as well, what would you recommend to someone in that situation? So, right. So PCOS is, you know, eight, eight to 10% of reproductive age women are affected with PCOS. So it's polycystic ovarian syndrome. And the diagnosis is made based on two out of three criteria. One is a complete lack of ovulation, so no periods at all, or just very delayed ovulation, so less than nine periods a year. Okay. The second is um, physical signs of excess androgens, so like acne, facial, like, you know, hair growth in the body. Or sometimes they don't have necessarily the physical signs, but their blood levels show elevated androgens. Um, so testosterone, DHEA, um, you know, a few other hormones that we check. And then the third is just on an ultrasound, the ovaries look what we say polycystic, which just means they have 12 or more little follicles per side. So um, it's very common. And when a woman who's not trying to conceive is diagnosed with it, historically, Western doctors have always sort of prescribed just go on birth control pills, um, gives you a regular bleed, protects the uterus, and kind of takes care of some of the symptoms with like the act. Acne. Not uh, what you want to do if you're trying to get pregnant. Not and exactly. <laughs> so if you're trying to get pregnant, so you stop the birth control pills, 
And, you know, you always kind of give it a little time, give it a few months, see if you, you know, maybe you had the PCOS prior to the pills, but once you, it it doesn't necessarily mean you're always going to have it. Yeah. And definitely things like lifestyle, diet, your weight can all impact it. Mm. And so, you know, you stop the birth control pills, you can give it a few months to see if your cycles resume or don't resume. Um, If they don't, you you definitely still want to touch base, I would say, with a Western doctor and make sure it's not your thyroid, make sure, you know, there could be other reasons you're not ovulating that have other fixes. If it is just kind of diagnoses, PCOS, you're not really ovulating and now you want to get pregnant, um, you know, I always kind of recommend diet and lifestyle modification as first line. So if you are overweight, losing the weight can help resume, you know, kick you back into regular ovulation. Yep. I'll say in, in, in my current practice, the majority of women I see who have PCOS actually have a normal BMI yep. and are not really candidates for me to go out and say, hey, you need to lose like 10 or 15 pounds. Right. Um, but still, I still do kind of talk to them about maybe working on diet, even seeing potentially a dietitian or a nutritionist and talking about dietary changes with respect to like high, lowering high glycemic index foods. Yep. Um and then I often, too, also will say, you know, listen, you can also go see an Eastern specialist um, who can work on, you know, PCOS and either give you like an herbal complex or recommend certain supplements like myo and acetal um, or just, you know, and, and the acupuncture treatment versus um, you can go, sh- you know, unfortunately with mas- Western medicine, it's straight to oral pills. There's Clomid and there's Femera. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, I think it just depends. Like some of my patients are like, I want to go straight to the oral medications. And then definitely there are some that are like, you know what, let me kind of work on my diet. Let me give this a few months. Let me work on my diet. Let me, um, you know, see a TCM specialist. Let me see what, you know, if I can kind of get my body to kick into natural ovulation on its own. Unfortunately, there's still some times where like they're just really, really true, true PCOS cases that they've tried everything and they need the Clomid or the Femera. Right. And what about endometriosis as it relates to fertility? And I guess it's cousin adenomyosis, which is starting to get a little more noise. (laughs) Yeah. So there is endometriosis, there's adenomyosis, and then there's fibroids. So endometriosis is really, I would say, probably more and more really becoming the culprit of a lot of infertility. Interesting. Um, So endometriosis is a condition where the endometrial cells or the tissue that normally lines your your uterus, called endometrial tissue, can sort of grow what we say ectopically, which means outside of where it should be. Yep. So um, endometriosis can grow all over your pelvic organs, all over your abdominal organs. Endometriosis, believe it or not, can grow in your lungs in extreme cases. It can grow over your entire body. And cause a lot of pain And cause a lot of pain and other symptoms. Um, GI symptoms, so constipation, diarrhea, like, you know, different GI, like both extremes. But um, a lot of discomfort, so discomfort starting at ovulation, really painful periods. Um, and then there's, there's cases of endometriosis where, believe it or not, they actually don't have pain but it it can still be there. And there's a very high association with infertility. The exact underlying 
etiology of how does the endometriosis cause the infertility is not entirely known. There's a lot of theories. In extreme cases, when endometriosis is so severe, it can block your tubes. So obviously, if your fallopian tubes are totally scarred because of endo, that can prevent pregnancy. But even in very, very, we always say it's an enigmatic disease where the symptoms are often out of proportion with what you might see at surgery. So even in very, very mild cases, there could be really bad pain and even infertility. So the thought process is there's a ton of microscopic inflammatory factors associated with it. So these are things that even if you do surgery, you may not be able to see it with the naked eye at the time of surgery even. And so there's some thinking that these negative proteins, negative cytokines, inflammatory factors are just preventing egg and sperm from coming together. Um, There's some thought process too that it could even prevent the implantation. So historically the teaching was always, okay, if you have really bad endo and you've tried and you've tried and, and you're not getting pregnant, IVF is the answer. Extract those eggs from that environment, fertilize them extrinsically and put the embryo in the uterus and that'll solve the problem. But there's more data now that we're getting so good at doing IVF and making gorgeous tested embryos. We're still finding a subset of endo patients not get implanting. Huh. And so there's we're addressing that by really, really strictly pushing for like anti-inflammation diets and treatment before the implant. So it doesn't necessarily have an impact on the egg quality more so just the implantation is bigger. We think it's both, both. to okay. be honest with you. And so, you know, so there was always this thinking, okay, well, if you can just extract those eggs, take them out of that environment, pick out which ones are good, meaning, you know, fertilize, make the embryos and then test those embryos yeah. and you have this gorgeous tested embryo. You know, many of those patients will get pregnant, no problem, yep. You'll they'll implant, but there's still a subset that are not implanting. Yeah. And so there's the kind of this thought process that, you know, what this inflammation that's associated with endo could even be affecting at the level of the uterus and the implant phase. Interesting. And then you talked a little bit about adenomyosis and fibroids. How are those affecting fertility? So fibroids are benign growth of the muscular component of the uterus. So the uterus is composed of muscle and gland. And so fibroids are benign growths of the muscular component and very common. You know, we predict that, you know, almost, you know, deeper into your reproductive years, like at least 50% of women have some form of a fibroid. With respect to your fertility, it really depends on the size and the location. So fibroids that are within your endometrial cavity or distorting that endometrial cavity can negatively impact uh, implantation or get, you know, increase your risk of miscarriage. Um, And then, you know, sometimes they're just so large that they cause pain. And so those, you know, have to be addressed. But just because you have a fibroid doesn't mean you have infertility. We see fibroids all the time and we don't, the majority of them we don't even touch. Yeah. So adenomyosis is sort of the relative of fibroids. Adenomyosis is when the glandular component of the uterus grows more than it should. Yep. And those women tend to have kind of pretty heavy, painful periods. Um, endometriosis, adenomyosis, fibroids, they are all fed by estrogen. Hmm. So what I always explain, and this is, again, the more years I do this, the more I see this, As women get deeper and deeper into their reproductive years and they have ovulation after ovulation after ovulation, to me it's almost normal by the time you're kind of in your 40s to have 
either a fibroid, adeno, or endometriosis because you've had all these years of of ovulation where your estrogen spikes and is getting these things to grow right so I, I i think they they're just again the the kind of deeper we get into our reproductive years the more common they become um and this is the one argument for if you're not trying to get pregnant birth control pills are actually helpful or hormonal contraception or any form of contraception that's suppressing your ovulation and keeping your estrogen kind of a little lower potentially can keep some of these factors a little more quiet Got it. So you brought up a couple of times the concept of testing and PGS, I believe, is how it's referred to and our ability to get a little bit more information around the embryo before it's implanted. Can you talk a little bit about what it is and what's the future of it? So with in vitro, so IVF, extract egg, fertilize with sperm, make an embryo, Histor- like traditional IVF, you would just implant the embryo, what we say, fresh, like five, three days or five days after the extraction. So there's a lot now you hear people testing embryos. Yep. So you can test the embryo for a genetic disease, so what we call single gene disorders. So if you know you potentially carry an autosomal dominant disease, yep. like right, 50-50 chance of passing it along. You can test an embryo for that. Um, or more commonly, it's autosomal recessive diseases that we're testing for. So cystic fibrosis, for example, the most common autosomal recessive disorder, about one in 40 are carriers. So if you and your partner or you know, the egg and sperm source usually are screened, yeah. uh, you know, you test. And if you're found to both be carriers of the same genetic disorder and it's something serious, you may be counseled to test your embryo ahead of time. So you can screen embryos for a genetic disorder. Okay. Um, and so, you know, sometimes we see those um, individuals come in and they, they are maybe not necessarily infertile, but they want to screen an embryo ahead of time. And then, but more commonly, people are screening their embryos for chromosomes. Okay. So the most common reason that women are not getting pregnant, um, I would say probably overall in general, in particular as they get older, is that the egg that fertilized has extra chromosomes or missing chromosomes. So you can, you know, sort of most sort of, when we talk about age, 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 age of the female, we, we talked a little bit about egg number and AMH, but it's really more the ability of that egg to successfully fertilize, right? Half the chromosomes come from the egg and half come from the sperm. So um, so when we talk a lot about screening embryos, we really are talking about the chromosomes. Right. Um, you know, we said like the, the sperm is sort of like, considered like not the culprit but we are learning a lot more actually that sperm can um you know impact you know can provide the wrong number of chromosomes as well it's not just all the eggs so definitely in men you know as they age as well the sperm can can you know the quality or health of that sperm can can be diminished it's just typically like the rate of decline in the sperm is not as quick or rapid as as with the egg got it so when we talk about testing embryos we really are talking about chromosomal screening and so that is going to Um, lower your miscarriage rate because the most common reason that women miscarry is just it wasn't the right chromosomes. Right. So we do have that technology. I I would say it just keeps getting better and better in terms of more and more refined, um, you know, what we can do in an embryo just, you know, keeps getting more specific. And you brought up men um, who are not as involved in this fertility (laughs) conversation, somewhat for obvious reasons, sometimes not as much as they should be. Um, What's going on with male infertility? 
So, you know, I, I do think we are kind of, we are learning more that it's not just all the egg's fault and that chromosomal aberrations to the embryo can come from the sperm. Um, it does tend to be, you know, men, I would say kind of 50 plus. Um, but also sperm is highly, highly impacted by lifestyle factors. So tobacco use is a big, big one um, that can definitely impact the health of the sperm um, as well as the egg, but for sure the sperm. I think, you know, unfortunately, for you know, things like marijuana use are becoming much more commonplace. Yep. And we're trying to understand the impact of that as well on, on egg and sperm. But thus far, you know, pointing to probably not good <laughs> um but you know again and like you know just sort so sort of like lifestyle choices like poor diet certainly can impact the sperm as well so it's not it's not just all the woman's fault um and and the one thing about sperm though is that it it's kind of has a, thir- a 90 day cycle so it is something that actually, if you really kind of make, make lifestyle, lifestyle changes, changes, can actually have a direct impact and improve versus unfortunately our eggs, I would say, like they're like your worst best friend. Like they've been there your whole life and they've been, they see everything they've, that they've been, you know, that you've done. Yeah. Um, so exercise was something that came up in this conversation too. Uh, how do you know when it's too much, too little, depends on the person, you know? Right. So, you know, I think for many, many years, there was this dialogue of like, oh, you're trying to get pregnant and you're not like, stop exercising, eat more, sit on the couch, gain weight. And it's like, blame, 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 pointing the finger at the woman, you know, oh, you're three mile jog that you got to stop that. And, you know, I am, it's actually, it's just all myth. That yeah. is myth, okay? Yeah. Yes, in extreme situations, extreme athletes, extreme, you know, expenditure. You know, I always say it's sort of calories in, calories out, right? right. And so if you're a pretty avid exercise exerciser, if you're maintaining a healthy diet, consuming enough calories, maintaining your weight, and getting regular cycles – that's okay. Right. Um, If you're an extreme athlete and you're not maintaining your calorie intake and you're losing weight, you will see your cycles will start to become irregular. You'll start to have what we call a short luteal phase. So you'll you'll ovulate and you'll get your period kind of earlier than you should, or you'll just stop ovulating altogether. So, um, you know, I think again, extra, you know, I think we kind of swung too far in one direction by saying you got to cut it all out. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there, I do encounter some patients where, you know, they're, they are exercising to a point where their body is breaking down, their hair is falling out, their hair is thin, their skin is, is, doesn't look healthy and they're not ovulating. And in those cases, we have to address that first, right? Like right. You, you, you need to be healthy, um, to carry a baby to carry for 40 a baby. weeks. Exactly, exactly. And so that is, but it's, you know, it's not as common as we think. I think, unfortunately, I see the other extreme, which is kind of normal, healthy appearing women who were told they need to just stop exercising altogether, that it's not good for their fertility. And that is a myth. Um, you know, exercise is good for your heart. It's good for your brain. It's good for your reproductive organs, you know, 
in moderation. And do you recommend whatever you enjoy doing or any guidelines or? Whatever you enjoy doing, right? Like, <laughs> like you'll actually do. <laughs> yeah, that's what you should do. And, you know, during pregnancy, the American College of OBGYN actually has statements out, bulletins, guidelines that recommend moderate to intense exercise most days of the week. Wow. So that's, you know, again, like they're, we're learning, like, you know, just you're pregnant, like you need to stay healthy, you need to stay fit. In general, those women tend to have lower rates of C-sections, They and they have very healthy babies. So it's, you know, I am a big advocate of you need to exercise, again, in moderation, make sure it's not affecting your weight, your, you know, and, and other factors. And are there any stress reduction techniques that you've seen work with your par- patients? Yeah. So I've had a lot say, actually, oh, God, I'm so glad I saw you because I stopped everything that I enjoy doing. (laughs) And so, um, you know, again, I think exercise is huge. Meditation is also really, really helpful. Um, I think, you know, we live really hectic lives here in New York and you're just always on the go. So find your way to meditate. You know, that could be different for other people. It doesn't necessarily could be on the subway. It could be on the subway. Exactly. So I think exercise, meditation. um, And I always say, I'm like, you have to continue to do the things in life that are fun. And if you like a glass of wine, like that's not going to prevent your pregnancy, right? <laughs> like, yeah, a bottle, maybe not good. You know, multiple cocktails, not good. But like, yeah. you know, y- you have to continue to live life. Right. 200 milligrams of caffeine a day are safe when you're pregnant. Is that a cup of coffee? It's about an eight ounce. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And so again, like there's, there's studies showing up to that amount, totally safe. And so again, if you're trying to get pregnant or pregnant, if you like a little caffeine, you know, a little bit is okay, but right. you know, just be mindful of, you know, what you're what you're what you're doing, you know, and, and sometimes unfortunately like we think we have so much control over this and I have patients, you know, who just sometimes they stop working, they stop drinking, oh, it's they worse stop <laughs> all caffeine, they stop yeah. exercising, they're stopping all these things thinking that like this is going to be the answer and then unfortunately you're you may not still be pregnant and right. now you know, this is not a good place. And it's to be all in. you put your mental energy on. Yeah. So one of the things I think is fascinating about what you do is you literally like ride the roller coaster of people on the happiest days of their lives, and then you know some of the darkest days of their lives. Um, how do you manage emotionally dealing with this? Right. I always say my job is easiest, like when it works, like when someone just comes through and I'm like, oh, you're a pregnant, great. Like that's that's fun. You kind of need me the least in that times. I'm like. Right. I'm needed when it's not working, right? Like that's when I'm like, okay, you're looking to me for answers, right? You're looking for me for the science and the medicine. Like why didn't it work? And then I also, you know, you're looking at me for next steps. You're looking at me for hope. You're looking at me for like keeping you in the game, as I like to say. And so um, it's, to me, that's, that's honestly where I feel like I thrive and I kind of, that's one of the reasons that drew me into fertility medicine is that I liked that emotional bond that I would have with the patient, with the partner, um, and sort of being there on that journey with them to me is the best part of my job. Mm-hmm. And so again, like, yes, I love it when they get pregnant the first time they do treatment. <laughs> like I would say one and done, like, right. Like I, I, I wish it was always that, that right. way. But, you know, sometimes these journeys can be so, so long and arduous. And 
as a marathon runner, I kind of always make the analogy. I'm like, you hit mile 26 and someone just told you you have like another 15 to go. Oh. And, and, and really sometimes it is that way. Yeah. And so, you know, it's just, it, you know, I'm one member of the team. We have, you know, other physicians, nurses, and other people in our office who are part of the team. But this is also where your TCM specialist, your, you know, yoga instructor, spin instructor, whoever, you know, your sort <laughs> yeah. of your friends, your family, like you really need a team. Um, and if you have a partner, you and your partner need to be also on the same team. And that's yeah. huge. Yeah. Can bring couples together or rip them apart. Yeah. So something we, I hear that's so frustrating is this bucket of unexplained, where people right. seem to check all the right boxes, ovarian reserve check, hormone levels look good. What's typically the driver there? Do, or is there just some things that even with these incredible advancements in science, we just don't know? Yeah, I think it's definitely largely that. So 20% of um, couples have what we call unexplained infertility, which means we've done all the testing and everything is checking out as normal. But to be honest, we don't have a ton of tests. We have a couple <laughs> blood tests. Yep. We have an ultrasound. We have an anatomy check, like checking to make sure the fallopian tubes are open. And then we have sperm testing. Like it's pretty basic and it's not a lot. And so, you know, I always explain that in these 20%, probably if I did surgery on all of those women, a large percentage would have endometriosis. But we don't, you know, surgery is a big deal. Right. Like we don't just go do it for diagnostic purposes. Right. Um, so I do think that there's, you know, there's endometriosis. There could be more subtle anatomic issues going on. And then even with the sperm, you can do a semen analysis and everything can check, you know, correctly the amount of sperm there, the movement, the shape. Yet do we really know if that sperm can penetrate the egg? We don't always know. We don't right. know that. So I think that there's just our science is still somewhat limited. And then some of the diagnostic tests you might want to do are too invasive, like surgery. So you're not just going to do that to say, oh, you have endo, you know. <laughs> right. What do you think is the future of fertility and reproductive endocrinology? So I think um, the goal is how do we how, how do we identify the single best embryo to to put back and so you know we're working on that and that seems to be where like chromosomal testing of the embryo has really shined um i do think that you know we're doing more we're, we're as we're sort of sequencing the genome and identifying more genes um i do think that we will probably be doing some more IVF for genetic factors, like for, you know, uncovering that people are carriers of pretty significant, you know, genetic diseases, right, that we didn't have tests for 10 to 15 years ago. I do think that over time we'll probably see things like SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, on the decline because I think that probably many of those cases were genetic diseases that we just didn't, wow. like, know about or have a test for. I, you know, and I, I think, though, in general, though, I do think that over time we will we will become much better at diagnosing infertility earlier, right? Like different yeah. genes that might impact your fertility. That is an area that we're improving. Do you think the MTHFR gene has any impact on fertility? So this is a big one. I was actually speaking about this <laughs> earlier today with somebody. So this is a gene that codes for an enzyme that helps in folic acid metabolism. And... Um, you know, about 30% of our patients have at least a minor mutation sure. in it. And I think there may be a link with implantation failure with it um, or early miscarriage. 
not so much the egg health itself, but more that implant phase. Um, and definitely like we're making recommendations to kind of make sure you're doing a methylated folate su- supplement. So we do test for it a lot, actually more and more, and are just like kind of altering the supplements that we have patients on with because of that. Interesting. What advice would you give to a couple struggling with infertility? I would, I mean, the advice I would give is like, make sure you have a good team, right? Like, so make sure you have a good team, make sure you have a, you know, clinicians, meaning doctors and TCM specialists on your side, ones that you feel comfortable talking to, that you can ask questions to, that, you know, you want them to have your back. Um, And that's just going to keep you in the game. And like, you just have to just keep putting one foot in front of the other. You know, I always say like, what's the goal? The goal is a healthy baby. There are many ways to achieve that. And, you know, you might start on one path and at some point if that path is not giving that goal there are other paths and so you know there's there's other you know there's there's other ways to explore there's other forms of treatment that are out there too and what advice would you give to your 20 something self uh, to my to my 20 something <laughs> self um yeah i mean i wish i wouldn't have been using so much aerosol and girl like i mean my 20 something self was like that was like back in the day where everything was fat free and fake like i never <laughs> ate an avocado or touched nuts in college you weren't seeing a tcm specialist no, at that time. i mean i was drinking diet coke eating other fake substances <laughs> and i'm like what? like i look back I'm like that's I can't even believe that, like, we didn't know what we know now. Right, then, right. even that. I mean, the way I live today is so much healthier yeah. um, just with food and, right. and lifestyle. Nutrition's come a long way. It's come a long way. <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. 